And we are back. Uh, this is exciting. We are we are still shining a spotlight on Mental Health Month. Um, and Maddie, I couldn't be. It, it feels like it's been weeks um, since we we've been on the podcast, but we are joined by a really special guest today. So I am thrilled. Maddie, how's everything going, bud? Good. Yeah. Why does it always feel that way? I mention it every time. I feel like even when we go like a couple days, I especially feel this way at this point about AB. We're missing him bad. We're going to have him back on this week, but we need to be made whole there. Um, good, man. You know me, the The sun is out finally after like weeks of nothing. And I'm like, I'm blooming. I'm I'm flying around just taking care of business. So I'm, I've got an extra pep in my step. I'm ready to, I'm ready to do some stuff and have this convo. So I'm excited. Well, it's it's exciting. Um, we are joined by Hillary Hartwig, um, who is a phenomenal therapist, uh, fantastic, um, based in Maine, and an expert in family therapy and personal therapy. Um, we'll get into her story, how she started. But Hillary, welcome to the show. Um, thank you for joining One Night in Pinehurst. Yeah, I've been for indulging like, us asking you for a, a few months like when when can we get you on and and we felt like this was the right time so thank yeah, you I think definitely this is the right time this is uh I consider this to be kind of a dude's podcast and there's a lot of things <laughs> you guys talk about that go right over my head so I'm excited to be part of uh, a topic that I might know something about <laughs> yeah you I, I promise you you probably know just as much as we do about the other things that we wax poetic about but we have to talk about something and so we pretend be so to be sure. experts yeah so Hillary if you don't mind like just indulge us a little bit like your background how you got into therapy and and you know maybe some of the things that you see as trends in in that space yeah. and yeah, where sure. Yeah. So I'm trained as a marriage and family therapist, which is considered to be kind of a specialty in the field, um, kind of a newer discipline in the field of therapy. So that's my training. Um, when I first started out a million years ago, I wanted to work with kids. So at the very beginning of my career, I worked with kids and I very quickly realized that you can't make much progress with kids without working with their parents. And then it wasn't far, a very far stretch from that. Um, for me to begin specializing in marriage therapy. So my practice now is largely working with couples, but also individuals, mostly who are talking and dealing with relationship issues, um, not exclusively, but that would be my specialty. So I'm thinking, not to derail us here, but knowing that now, now that like sort of your primary focus is on couples, I would imagine that's obviously two times as hard as just talking to one individual because you're dealing with two sets of ideals and values. Yeah. What, what, so ignoring the obvious challenges of like differing perspectives and just, you know, individuals having their own, their own way. And like you mentioned parents and how you were raised and sort of just like the, the things that you pick up over time. What are the biggest challenges you see in chatting with couples about what they're trying to accomplish and the goals that they've got? Yeah, that's a good question. I think honestly, even though working with two people is obviously twice as hard as working with one, if I'm working with a marriage, which the mm. marriage would be considered the client, it's actually easier to make progress mm. and affect change when both partners are in the room. And invested. And the challenge is energetically, right? There's often a lot of conflict. You have to manage the emotional state of both people and remain neutral. So yeah. that's the challenge. There's 
there's lots of couple sessions that after the couple leaves my office, I'm sweating, like literally, <laughs> like literally sweating. Yeah. <laughs> because energetically it's a lot, yeah. but it's it's easier than if I'm than if one partner comes talking about the problems they're having in their marriage and the other person isn't there, it's it's less effective. It's harder to to actually help them. Yeah, there's no um you don't you don't necessarily shine the light on it. We only make these changes when we're sort of forced to, right? Like habits are hard to create and hard to break. So that makes sense. Okay, that checks out. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like in it must be I was going to go a different way with this question, but like building trust, right? Like with your clients and you're you're dealing with a lot of times two separate separate people that you're trying to build trust in the marriage but like how how does that work how does that look in terms of you know ongoing relationship with with your clients I think that's a good question I think the first part that makes it easy is that people come to therapy looking to trust me right so it's it's kind of like it's a built-in assumption that they're coming to an objective person I don't have any stake in their life. And so there's almost, and people, by the time they make it to my office or on the zoom screen with me, they're so ready to unload and unleash. I feel like they're just like hungry for that trust. So that's the first part. And I think the second part that I meet that energy or that, that intention and that desire with is I, I think that I'm just gifted like with a sense of like an ability to really be present with people and to just really listen. And I just have an ability to just enter into the space with them wherever they are and be non-judgmental, which is, I mean, I cultivate that, but I also just think that I'm like, I'm lucky that that's part of my giftedness as a person, which makes me a good therapist. I can't take credit for it necessarily. It just happens to be who I am, which is why I found my way into this field because I just, you know, I'm a good listener and able to be present and really non-judgmental, like really open-hearted. And then people just warm up to that. And because they want it so much when they find it, it just rolls, you know? Yeah. I mean, those are skills, right. And, yeah. and credit to you too, for like finding your way to a profession where you can, you, you know, that whole phrase, everybody's always saying like, don't, you don't work a day in your life. If you love what you do, I butchered it, but Yep. I feel like I don't know what percentage of people actually get there, but like, I don't think a lot of people like love what they do like that. So that also probably makes it easier. Cause I know I can speak for Gibby and myself on this, like staying present is, is a struggle for mm-hmm. sure for us and probably a lot of people. But I, I, I think about that too, like building that trust and building that rapport that's required to get somebody who is technically a stranger to open up. But to your point, right? Like they, they made the choice to to begin therapy. And so that's like one of the hurdles already cleared, mm-hmm. but you making it feel so welcome for me anyway, would make me feel like, okay, this is a safe place where I can like dump some of this stuff out and then try to figure out how to put that puzzle together. Yeah. And I think I, I sense that people are like just really desperate to be honest in their yeah. lives. And we don't, we don't create, we don't have good contexts in our regular lives for brutal yeah. honesty. And yeah. so therapy is so like such a special sacred place because people come and get the thing that they're craving so much in their lives. And yeah. it's to me, it feels like a privilege and an honor to hold that space for people where they can just like get the thing that they're longing for so much. And I hope that it gives them the courage when they practice it in their therapy session with me, it gives them the courage to, 
to do that in their real lives and, and get it in their real relationships, you know, cause yeah. I'm, I'm a pseudo relationship. Like I'm practicing. And practice, pra- <laughs> like actually put it into practice and try it out. Like some of that seems like it overlaps too with like the whole Brené Brown, like the stories we tell ourselves. Yes. We all do it, right? Like when you're on your own and you're thinking in the brain, cause like, I, I think I saw a stat the other day, like 50% of people don't have an inner monologue. I don't know if I trust that number. But I, that's, don't, I don't believe that at all. Oh my that's God. That's concerning. If that's even remotely <laughs> accurate. Yeah. Gibby, Gibby, <laughs> fact check me on I'll that. Check I will preface by, I saw it on Twitter. They're liars. It's probably garbage. Um, if they yeah, say I'm, it, they're lying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm concerned about that 50% of the population, if that is the case, but you know, everybody does that. And then, you know, the, the, <laughs> The stories we tell ourselves are very different from re- re- the reality that we actually live in. So mm-hmm. that makes sense. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think too, in, in something, you know, we were talking about earlier was, you know, like the ability to just act, right? Like we, you know, Authentic. people put themselves and they create these situations in their lives that, you know, they suffer through. <laughs> and if they would just, act on you know what they are suffering through it might be more painful at first but it's ripping off the band-aid and you know Hillary and I were talking about that before um and and I think that's that's something too that there is a inner monologue and I highly doubt the the 50 percent range but (laughs) don't quote me on it don't quote just share knowledge one of the things that you know you were talking about was also like supporting people through change Mm. and you know changes happen in marriages they happen in you know work and in everything and in most of our audiences uh 35 to 45 year old males (laughs) don't limit us Gibby don't limit us we can fly all right we can go anywhere but I'm just being honest with our listeners okay fair fair so like you know, their, their work changes going on for some people, their life changes with babies, with, you know, families that are changing, aging adults and parents, et cetera. Like what, what are some of the things that you see as common threads in Mm -hmm. people that are managing through change and, and how you support? Yeah. I think change is a really, is an interesting thing to think about because some of the examples that you gave are are big changes, sudden changes. There's some changes that come in our life that happen all at once, right? And we're forced to adjust to them. There's other changes that are kind of in the middle that we want to be really intentional about creating new habits or changing old habits. And that is like a really intentional um, step process where you like make a decision that you're going to do something different. And then over time, a new habit is you know, created or changed. But I, but I think more often, maybe not more often, but another category of change that I see a lot in therapy is this very subtle, slow, gradual change that's like um, like a series of one degree turns, you know, and if like you do enough like one degree turns after a period of time, you've changed direction, but you don't realize it because it's like subtle and just a tiny little bit at a time. And I see... I see that a lot, you know, and I think like that's like the kind of the patient steady work that we are all doing on ourselves all the time is that like slow gradual change. But, you know, as I said, I think that there's there's different categories of change in the ways I described. It's it's funny that you mentioned that I so I'm 
late to the game on this, but I just started reading or I'm halfway through Atomic Habits, a book by James Clear. And that is one of the concepts that stuck with me um, because I struggle to focus even when I'm reading. Like it's hard for me to like pick these up, but doing like the 1% better every day, eventually you do sort of turn the the shield. Habits, what does it take 30 days to build a habit and then even longer to like lock it in? So I think I've learned this recently because I always try to do everything at once. It never works. Like you can't tackle all these things at once, but I love that thought process. And I'm glad that that's something that you, you talk to people about too, because every little bit will be one more percent in this case, in the direction you want to be, as opposed to going the other way. So and we want to really set cool. ourselves. We want to set set ourselves up for success in life mm-hmm. in all things because, like you said, Maddie, if you if you try to do too much all at once and then you fail, then you're discouraged from trying at all. Yeah. So if you have kind of a slow and steady approach, you're just more apt to be successful. And just like anything that you do gradually over time, it's going to stick in a in a more sustainable, transformational way than yeah. you know if I say. I'm not going to eat cookies anymore. And I don't eat cookies for a week, but then it's like, like just really too like hard. A, it's, a, yeah, it's a diet. Then, right. Then you just go back to it because it's like too much and you can't sustain it, but yeah. smaller, more gradual changes you can sustain. And then you're more likely to really experience transformation. That's long lasting. Do you feel like, so during this process, while you're having these conversations with clients, do you feel like you're prescribing for them almost like an action plan to do some of these things? Or are you really just like giving ideas and thoughts back to them that they can consider to sort of like in a Bayesian way, fold that into their process to see if they can get a little bit better? Like what's the approach there? Are you like offering advice, so to speak, or are you like giving them a plan, like a path forward or a little bit of both? It's an art. It's an art of listening to what people say and gleaning from what they say, what they know is the next right thing for them. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants, you know, that's, nobody wants to, they might think they want to be told what to do, but if I tell you what to do, you're much less likely to do it than everyone knows what the right thing is. Everyone has an intuition. Everybody comes knowing what they need to do. I'm there just to reflect back to them what they already know and hold them accountable to do what they already know they're supposed to do. You're smiling, yeah. Mike. Why are you smiling? <laughs> I'm smiling because, and uh, you know, I was going to save this for a, a fancy, fun question, but so I, I hid the the secret a little bit. Um, I've been working with Hillary for four years, um, and it has been one of the most extraordinary, um, you know, experiences of of my life to you know grow and build relationships with people that you know, I, I wouldn't have normally seen, I was going to say that, but I was also going to say like, Hillary, why am I still like getting upset about the Broncos after <laughs> four and a half years of work together? But um, so I, mean, I didn't want to make it about me, but it's probably um, about me. Cause I'm always telling you to not care about the Broncos, which is not the right path. So we're going to, you know, we're going to get through this together. We're going to get you. I, that I think it has, I think it has a little bit of something to do with accepting the things that you can't control in life. <laughs> And you can't control the but I don't <laughs> want to reveal too much. You can of pile on. You can pile on. <laughs> control the controllables, Gibby. Come on. You know that. Well, I mean, if I, if I, you know. Root no, see, he's already going down the wrong journey. He's, we lost him. We'll turn him around. We'll we him might need an emergency session. <laughs> We're doing it live. Um, but in all honesty, like one of the things that you were talking about too is, uh, and you've been talking about for years, is um, mindfulness. 
and like being in the actual moment and pausing, stopping and, you know, tell me a little bit about your philosophy, like where you glommed on or not glommed on, but where you came to, to that sort of framework too. Yeah. I don't know how I, how I necessarily came to it, like a little at a time and all at once. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of the way, you know, it's unavoidable. This mindfulness thing is kind of unavoidable in the world. Um, I think that mindfulness is about being awake to your own experience. It's like waking up, noticing that you're alive, notice what you're doing, notice what you're feeling. It's like, um, I've read, you know, different philosophers talk about it as like the dream and the dreamer, you know, like your life is the dream, but you have to like recognize that you are the dreamer, like be the observer of your own life. And to me, that's what mindfulness is. It's like kind of this, like rising above your experience and having this second level of consciousness that you're watching yourself live your life and be aware of it. Like, don't just kind of bobble through life unconscious, like be conscious of what you're doing, what you're feeling, how you're behaving, take ownership of the moment that you're in. That's what I see mindfulness as being. That's like, yeah, I'm guilty of, um, I'm a big box checker. It fuels me to like accomplish little things. So I'll just check boxes all day. But I realize as you're saying that I'm not really there. I'm doing it on autopilot because our brains aren't supposed to multitask, obviously, like we're not built to do that. But are there any, so I know meditation is obviously an element here and like, you know, yoga helps as well with like just stopping and trying to be more in the moment and like reminding yourself, do you have any strategies that you share with people of like little things, maybe not like a, not like a, a tick, but like something that people can do in the moment to like wake themselves back up and say, Hey, make sure you're here with this and not like floating around. Yeah. I think that body awareness is, is a good place to start, right? Like when you start to notice, you know, that I don't remember the word you just said, but this kind of like float, like that you're just floating through your existence. I think coming back, back to your body sensation, obviously the breath, I mean, it's cliche. It's overused to a point where people be like, oh yeah, take a deep breath, but it actually, it actually does work. Right. And your breath is kind of like the first way to reconnect to the fact that I'm alive, I'm breathing, I'm here. There's this force that is sustaining me that is beyond me, right? So kind of the philosophical idea of your breath is a good place to start. And then your breath brings you into your body. If you notice where the breath feels, if you feel it in your chest, if you feel your shoulders rise and fall, if you feel it in your belly, right? It has just a way of bringing you back. And then you can notice what your body's feeling. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling tense, if you're um, feeling rushed, you know, sometimes you have like this rush feeling, especially when you want to like get things done. And then you can just take notice of that and remind yourself to be the observer, observe your experience, observe your body and recenter, reset, reground and come back. Gives you a little path forward, gives you an action item or two. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'm curious too. You said a few things that, you know, um, I, I've been thinking about like in terms of common trends, right. And what we're hearing about. And, and obviously this show is to talk about mental health and, you know, tell people like, Hey, it's not the worst idea to talk to a therapist. Right. Um, what are, what are some, and, and that was popularized. We talked about it with Marissa last week backstage, like 
I, I felt like, oh my gosh, Howard Stern talks to a therapist. Like he's, he's done okay. Barack Obama is talking to a therapist. Like every but, athlete, almost every, every athlete. athlete in the world. I mean, teams like, employ, teams employ sports <laughs> psychologists and therapists now. As yeah. they should. And so yeah. I'm also thinking about like, what are, what are some of the common trends that you see in terms of just mental health in general? Like if you were to bucket them and I don't know if everything yeah. comes together, but yeah, and I don't, I don't know. the The list is long, right? We are yeah. we're so like like you guys are just saying, mental health therapy has become trendy, right? Mm-hmm. So just the concept in and of itself has become trendy, and we have so much access to to good good resources. Like there's so many good good podcasts, like people talking about good things, books that are available. There's just like an overall in our culture more of a of a hunger and access to this kind of information so i think that's i think mental health awareness and self-development growth is a trend in and of itself and then like within that there's i i I couldn't even begin to list all of the trends that fall under that you know um but uh, i think that in i i will say that as as people's awareness of mental health and even what we were talking about before the podcast started, men specifically becoming more aware of their need to be emotionally present and attuned. I think that that's a big trend, that as our society is changing and women and men's roles are changing and balancing out, that men are starting to wake up to like, oh, we're expected to do this emotional thing. And men who I talk to who are in their 60s you know, are like, oh, geez, I don't know how to, like, I never was taught how to do this, right? But men in their 20s and 30s and 40s are a lot better at it because we've been talking about it and practicing it more. So that's that's one of the things I see happening. I I can only speak for myself on that, but I know for me personally, the reason I was telling you this, Gibby Backstage, Green Room. This is Green Room. Hillary's also um, an esteemed... uh, thespian um she was yeah. she was in a a show last summer um what, what show was it that you played oh what what just happened here wow i know Give we changed flip, everything Give just so we, we decided it's backstage or green room but you were you're also an actress in a in a theater show we've okay. got a running joke where every time we do one of these gibby changes like it whether it's backstage back room green room like he can't make up his I mind so i always it. ask okay. him it's one of our running gags sorry that you had to be a part of it but okay. thank you for like, being are we backstage right now? Or- <laughs> no, 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 we're recording. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I went off the rails. Sorry, Hillary. Now, oh, so I was going to say, bring you back. Um, for me personally, I associated these types of conversations growing up with weakness, yeah. and so as a male in the society that we've got, you know, don't show any weakness, or you won't get opportunities to grow your career or meet a spouse. Like all of these things that we think are like harmful ramifications. As it would turn out, that would have been very helpful to me to have known this many years ago. I would have been, like we talked about in the green room, a little bit of a superpower. So, yeah, that that I think that all makes sense to me. I, I do believe that there's obviously a place for this for everybody to be doing something like this. Because otherwise, you're just kind of listening to yourself and like letting if that bias creeps in. If you don't have anybody else in your life that you trust to give you that honest feedback, then it's hard to do with family and friends because you have like existing friendships and relationships there that make it tricky. But I don't know how you usually get people again, once they get to you, they've made the decision, but like 
Yeah. What's the very beginning of that process look like for you in terms of like getting them comfortable? Males, especially. Like I said, and I can't speak for every therapist. It might be different for other therapists, but I personally find in my experience that when people come, they're ready and there's not, I don't, I don't perceive that I'm doing a lot of work to make them feel safe. I I think that maybe like, maybe there's something inadvertently that's happening that I'm not aware of, but I find that people come they're they're really ready to, to open up and share. And I think that what we don't, like you were just saying, you know, we get lost in our own stories and, and lost in our own thoughts. And we don't have a, like a built in discipline or mechanism in our daily lives where we can hear ourselves. Like it's all locked in our head, but yeah. you know, like journaling is a great discipline. People who journal, that's a mechanism where you can get what's inside of you out and then like kind of reflect on it and make sense of it. And I see therapy as like a living journal, like, you know, people come and they talk to me and say the things that they otherwise would write in their journal. And there's something really powerful about hearing your inner dialogue spoken out loud. And there, um, Mike, you mentioned the idea of mirroring. I, I act as a mirror, like people say their stuff and I reflect it back to them. And then there's like a magic that happens when you hear your own inner voice reflected back to you, then you're able to be like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Or, oh, that doesn't sound right. Or, oh, wait a second. I see how this could be better. And it's a, it's a, it's like a discipline and a practice that I think we all could do on our own, but it's like when you show up to therapy, it's, it's a, it's an appointment, right? And it's like, I'm, I'm setting this yeah time frame to work on myself right and like like going to the gym exactly like it and you know but it's it's (laughs) expanding different avenues too and and places that you might be uncomfortable like Mm -hmm. and how do you manage that like when you do have someone that is talking about something that is really uncomfortable for them to talk about like what's going through your head in in terms of being a therapist and being supportive and and is it the same process or? Yeah, I think it's, it's like just warmth and acceptance and non-judgment in the same way. I think that I, I, I hope that I'm not in those moments that you're talking about specifically when people are talking about something that's really hard and uncomfortable, or they feel wound up about or self-conscious about my hope is that I model for them what I would hope they can be for themselves in that moment, which is, loving, gentle, compassionate, non-judgmental of them, of their own self, because that's where it begins. And my hope is just to model that for them so that they can cultivate that for themselves and then go forward with more courage. Yeah. The, yeah, I like that too. Cause the, for me, and again, growing up, I thought courage was something very different than this. Mm. You're just kind of told it's like, taking a risk or like jumping into a situation that you normally wouldn't or things like that. And again, I think it's just reframing. Like we don't, we talked about this before on a different podcast, Gibby and I kind of what we're teaching kids growing up. Like, you know, we we're in books talk, looking about like the Spanish inquisition or like different wars or finance over time, or like animal phylum order cordata, like all these things that are important in some capacity but I don't think we spend enough time. Like what's your take on that? Cause we talked about this with our previous guest we had last week too. What's your take on like, cause you mentioned at the very, very beginning, a lot of this is the family 
upbringing and that like leads to it like what do you have a take or you know do you have a, a sense of like what we could be doing earlier on for kids to teach them that like this there is another way to think about this and it's actually beneficial I really like the podcast that you guys do with Marissa because the yeah. what's happening in schools and the responsibility that educators have for the emotional and social development of kids is so huge and I have so much respect for the task that they take on it's so huge my perspective working with families um, to your, to your question is, I think that we are only as good for our kids as we are for ourselves, as we are to Mm -hmm. ourselves. So as parents, we have the responsibility to be working on ourselves and um, keeping ourselves in check so that we can bring the best version of ourselves to our parent, to our children as parents. I like, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. And we all grew up with imperfect parents and we're as adults healing from the consequences of the ways our own parents got it wrong. And Mike, you've heard me say this before. We're all fucking up our kids. We're just Uh all doing it in a different way. And my hope is that we just don't fuck up our kids in the same way that our parents fucked us up. That's my hope is that like, we're going to mess them up, but just don't do it the same way that your parents messed you up. <laughs> like, and I think it's adults a different way. We'll mess them up a different way. Do it a different way. So like evolve as an, evolve as an adult so that you can get it right for your kids in ways that it wasn't gotten right for you. And then it's their job to sort out the rest. <laughs> I, I I agree with you, Hillary. We've talked about this a lot, but like I also think, you know, sometimes we're too hard on our parents. It, even as like adults, we're like, they did this wrong, they did that wrong. Like Guess what? They were 40 years old or 35 years old trying their best. And, you know, they're still trying their best and they're human beings. And now they're dealing with adult children that are telling them to like. (laughs) And everybody has different, not only perspectives, but everybody has different goals and different ideals. And we're all like kind of driving in the same direction, but towards different things. Like, I think we talk about like, I I think it's important to do this. And I did it a while ago because somebody had mentioned it to me. Like creating value pillars for yourself as an individual, yeah, like, like the things like I have three of them that like I try to just go back to not unlike what you were saying about like trying to be with the breath. They're like almost like a, it's like a heuristic for me to go back to to be like, make sure that I'm at least doing this and I probably won't get into trouble. Yeah. But I, I wonder like how often that comes up. Like, do people hold themselves to any kind of ideals or is it really just people out here just trying to do the best they can every day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that reminder to really identify your value pillars. I like that. I I should do that more because I think that's really helpful because I think we all, we have them kind yeah, of definitely. in the back of our minds, but yeah. I I really like that, that, the, that prompt to like actually identify them as a, as a touchstone that you can bring yourself back to. I think that's yeah. really helpful. Yeah. That could cool. be helpful for people. So Hillary, thank you a for everything over the years, but also more importantly, like for for this show and and I need to know before we go, right? You've had a long day. You've had to deal <laughs> with me with <laughs> you know session after session. <clears throat> Excuse me, you haven't had a break, and then dinner's not going to be for another three or four hours, and you've got an hour to drive. You need gas. Mm-hmm. gas station what are you, what's your go-to what what is the snack that we're picking up so my gas station go-to snack are haribo sweet and sour gummy snakes 
Oh, oh the wow. snakes. I didn't even know they made those. They're like half of them are sweet and half of them are sour and they're really <laughs> chewy. And my commute is only one minute. I my office. <laughs> Same. So I barely ever have to get gas. So you're going out of your way. So I keep a package of those in my car at all times. So when I get in the car, I always have a gummy snake to put in my mouth. <laughs> I didn't even know. So there's a lot of people who are like very, I've learned this, very passionate about their allegiance to a particular type of gummy bear. And people swear by the, what is it, Haribo? Haribo? I don't know, Haribo, Haribo. I this is the first time I've ever had to say the word out loud. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. That was vulnerable. Yeah, that was very vulnerable. Well, we're right we're there. helping you grow here. Yeah. I just we know provided, what the We finally like. provided a guest with something of value back to them. What a day for us. Um, I didn't know they did the combo because I do like to rotate between savory and sweet or spicy sour. and sweet or so. sour. sour and sweet. Yeah. Like half of them is sour, half of them is sweet, and they're really chewy. I'm going to seek those out. I'm a, I'm a sucker for gummy things now and again, for sure. I'm going to find those. That's a good answer. And also baked lays is also my second go-to. Okay. Both two of those, both uh, unique answers. I don't believe we've gotten either one of those yet. So that's awesome. They're both strong answers. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and sugar-free Red Bull. Yes, actually, I'm a pretty big sugar-free. Gibby knows I like a nice sugar-free Red Bull. I've been cheating Uh, on them with Celsius lately, but. You know, I can, I go back anytime. Let's just, you know, be careful here, everyone. Yeah. Gibby would prefer the sugar full versions oh, of those. No, things. no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Um, sweet, big, sweet anyway. tooth on Gibby. <laughs> we'll have a Gibby and tonic sometime, but yeah. Um, no, but in all honesty, like, so we covered a lot and thank you, Hillary, but any mm. last like final tips, what you would tell someone that has either been in therapy, never been in therapy or, or whatever the case might be like some, like a, a parting message for listeners um, that, that they might be able to implement um, either today, tomorrow, or a month down the road. Okay. I would say uh, hearkening back to what I said earlier, there's so much good information available. So many good books, so many good podcasts, so much good information out there on how to be better humans, how to be better in our relationships. So my parting words would be just to encourage everybody to just like, listen to something, read something, try something different, just do a little better, like be a little better in the world, like be a, like a little bit of a better listener to your friend, be kinder to your partner, right? Like just we all can just do 10% better in our mm-hmm. life every day. And that would be like, we don't like, you don't have to go to therapy every week or every other week to just be a better human. And I think we all, yeah. if we just put a little effort in, we could all just be better humans. And I like what you said earlier too, about that, like bite off what you can chew. Like, let's be realistic about like, again, you're not going to go, I'm not going to go to the gym tomorrow and then all of a sudden start lifting 500 pounds. It just right. can't happen. So I think that part for me anyway, is a big challenge. Mm-hmm. So I like that. It's a good takeaway. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Hillary, thank you. Maddie, thank you. Uh, yes, Hillary, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank this you is, so much, Hillary. This is great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. This is fun. Good night, everyone. See ya.